but almost always we're connecting to a very special landscape. And, uh, and how does architecture kind of be symbiotic with that, be unique to that place, something that couldn't be anywhere else, um, but be progressive and modern at the same time. Hi. Hello. 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 Hello, and welcome to Architecting. This is a podcast about the lives of architects. About the people and stories behind the buildings that we see around us and the images that brought them to life. And with the very international world that we live in. This show will purposefully be local and narrow. Only focusing on the Colorado community of designers. Hi, I'm Adam Wagner. I'm the host of this show. I'm an architect who's worked for a dozen different firms in three different countries. But for the last five years, I've been rooted in Denver, Colorado, where I'm at Open Studio Architecture, and I teach at the University of Colorado, Denver. I like connecting with other designers and learning from their experiences. So now I'm broadcasting these conversations with the goal of creating a stronger local community here in Colorado. That brings us to our guests today, Rich Carr and John Cottle, two of the partners at CCY Architects. So CCY is a firm that I've, I've wanted to talk to for a while. I, I haven't really connected with as many mountain designers yet as I, as I want. Uh, and I always saw CCY as one of the giants there in Aspen and in, in our state as well. Um, the, the Their firm has a long history, being founded some 50-ish years ago, so long ago that they can't get a trustworthy date out of their original founders of, of when it actually was founded. Um, but Rich and John found their way to Aspen earlier in their careers and really haven't left. Uh, they're based in, Roaring, in the Roaring Fork Valley, but have a tremendous national and international reach, completing houses, uh, commercial projects, and master plans around the world. Uh, for me, their work is really a, a powerful exercise in connecting to place and of pushing the bounds of, of modern architecture, um, winning them numerous regional and national design awards and recognitions. On top of our, our conversation about their careers and design process, we were able to get into their new beautiful monograph that they've created called Connection, which is full of, of photographs, um, plans, and, and other drawings that, that I haven't seen on their website before. Uh, just a, a really great um, document. So it should be hitting the bookstores any day now, so go out and check it out. Anyways, this was a good talk with two very talented architects. Hope you enjoy. Hey, so our goal at Architecting is to strengthen the community of Colorado designers, and nobody is doing this better already than Modern in Denver. So Modern in Denver has been striving to bring designers together and to bring people to good design for a long time now. We're excited to be working together with them on this shared goal. For over a decade, they've been crafting fantastically curated and designed content on Colorado designers and projects. So go out now, buy a copy of their newest issue at your local bookstand, subscribe to their weekly email list, and follow them on Instagram. Well, how, how is your guys' day going? <laughs> good, good. 
Yeah. We got we're, we're in this white box. Right. We had we had to take all the cool projects off the wall. So you're Come hurting us already. You're killing it. Come on, man. That's what I wanted to see. I want to <laughs> I want to be the fly on the wall in the office. Uh, this this beautiful uh, mountain office uh, and getting getting nice white boxes. Yeah. But what what is your office like? The physical space of it. It is a semi unfinished space that we moved into 20 years ago. And we got a little story about that later on. But, um, and semi unfinished so that we can put up all the creative work around us and have that finished the space. But it, it's a, it's a, it's a nice space to work in. We've got three studios and of course meeting rooms and all of that. But hmm. it's a nice interactive. Space. No private offices ever in the in the firm. Hmm. So we sit across from each other and draw together and work together and interrupt each other, give each other shit all the time. And we have a drive-by guest trip, you know, guest guest crit culture. We talk yeah. about. Yeah. So uh, intentionally bump into each other the hallway kind of approach. Yeah. And when you say three studios, do you mean kind of like three larger rooms, uh, or or is it more about kind of typology or something like that? But no, no. Thanks for clarifying that. Three larger rooms where, um, yeah, everyone shares desk space together, and it just happens to be broken into three studios. Mm. Where 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 if you start to get too close to somebody, you can at least go to the other room a little bit, and you're not at one big table. <laughs> yeah. But so that's so that's been from the beginning. I mean, this building is 20 years old and uh, and that kind of uh, spatial condition and and kind of size of firm has been the same or. So. um, So similar. Yeah, similar. The we yeah, we moved into this office 20 years ago and specifically kind of crafted that. For the way we work, and and the firm's been pretty consistent in size since then, in large part because we didn't want to get any bigger and have more offices. We wanted to, we we really value working together, you know, iterating quickly, learning from each other quickly, and as soon as you start to add different offices, we think the dynamic changes. Yeah. So does that go into sort of how you would explain yourselves? I mean, it's interesting how you how you explain yourselves, maybe individually or as a as a firm. How would you how would you start to answer that question of kind of who are you? You know, you don't take that one. Yeah, well, I think John and I were talking about it earlier. I think one common thread to the history of the firm. The firm has been around almost fifty years. John joined in the early eighties. I joined in the late eighties, uh, and I took a break in the nineties and came back in the late nineties. But one common thread has always been, I think, a passion for fun and, and adventure uh, and enjoying the whole journey together. It's blended with a real focus on a passion for design. So if there's a youthful, fun spirit that's always existed in the firm, and we're always trying to make sure that that continues to flourish. And I would say it kind of is more than ever, even right. with us older guys. Right. Um, so it's been a real important part of our culture for a very long time. So. Our, our studio and our physical plant is is really all about nourishing that. You know, how do you find the right balance of fun and passion um, in design and, and work life balance 
in our spaces and, and learn from each other at the same time. Because I think John, particularly as always, felt um, having a firm that's really about learning from each other and building off each other makes our work better and makes the experience better uh, versus having a sole proprietorship or a smaller office, right. which John collaborated on his original experience. Right. Um, yeah. so, you know, Adam, one thing, you know, when the, your prompt of who who are you, of course, there are kind of infinite ways to answer it, but as, as I thought about it more and more. My, my short answer is, um, for me personally, I'm just lucky. Um, I've had the opportunity, as, as Rich said, to work in a place that uh, a great natural environment, um, you know, great recreation, but to practice serious architecture and to practice people with people who uh, I, I just happen to really like. You know, Rich, Rich and I have been partners for 20 plus years, and um, it's been incredibly rewarding. And fun, and uh, and the and the work's been great. And uh, you know, how can you ask for anything more? It's, I'm lucky, <laughs> and I think we we a lot of us would have a very similar answer, and and for slightly different reasons, but not that much. We 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 get to do great work. We get to. Uh, you know, listen to everybody's tales every Monday about what mountain did you climb or what river did you jump in and, you know, kayak or mountain biking. And um, it's, yeah. a, it's a nice thing to practice. Yeah, lucky. That, that, sounds, that sounds nice. You guys have set it up well. So, John, let me, let me let's start with you because you've been there a little bit longer. So that idea of sort of, luck or or playfulness or joy has that always kind of been there for you like where where did you grow up where did you grow up in the mountains or you find your way to them um so my my family moved around a lot um we were we're an airline family so Hmm. salt lake city silicon valley washington dc la silicon valley before i went to school um and then, then I, I went to uh, school in Salt Lake City because it was really close to a, a family stomping ground that I really loved. And um, at least for me, Rich, it, it's interesting. Rich and I have different paths to architecture. I, um, I took a very long path. So I studied about every subject I could find <laughs> in school before I ended up. <laughs> In architecture, and actually got an English literature degree, which which I still love. But um, and then and then kind of backed into architecture in a way, and and it's been perfect and fantastic. But that's that's how I ended up in architecture. So how how did you back into it? What was that? What was that sort of path? Um, I had, well, this is actually. Again, this is for sharing with young architects, you know, how we get here. And again, I, I really enjoy the fact that I think Rich knew he was really interested in architecture from a, from a young age. And uh, that was just not at all in, in our family's DNA in a way. And um, so after, I don't know, five starts in majors um, and four or so years in school, I literally remembered a um, 
you know, it was, a, it was an aptitude test that I took my senior year in high school. And it said, you should, you should, your major should be architecture and that should be your profession. <laughs> and I said, well, at least I should take a class in it. And that, that was, that's true. That's how I ended up there. But, but you, you got a whole nother degree before you decided to take that one class. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was just short of, yeah. Yeah. I was just short of about four degrees. Uh, so then rich what was what was the other side of that coin then what was where'd you grow up and how did you end up in architecture i was a san francisco bay area kid and i always did like art from a very young age getting my sketches published in the san francisco comical or whatever Hmm. and um was always inventing and reinventing suburbans and the campers or houses or whatever might be going on so um I got into architecture probably early in high school. I went to, a, and later in high school, I went to a Cornell architecture program, which was a six-week program, which shot me across the country. It was really quite an experience. And, uh, and I loved it. And I ended up going to Cornell, you know, for their full five-year professional degree program. And uh, I've been in it ever since. And it came to happen right after that. So, um, yeah, different trajectory, but it's always uh, felt very comfortable to me. So but, I mean, Rich has a beautiful hand. His sketches are, are really <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's showing his hand. It's, um, it's beautiful. Yeah. So, it, yeah, when when he said he had his sketches published, it, it, you you know that's got legs there because he, he really does have a gorgeous hand. What what sort of stimulated that? Was it, were your parents in in art, or did it just kind of come natural? And I I think my mother was always looking after her children and pushing us along into whatever aptitude we might have shown. And so for me, I would say it was art and math and, um, and such, you know, and I always enjoyed business too, actually. I think John and I, not that we've focused on getting MBAs and things, but, um, we've always known if we didn't have a solid business, we wouldn't have the ability to create all the things we do. So that's always been kind of behind the curtain, but an important, aspect of my upbringing my dad was a big mckinsey and company kind of guy you know mm-hmm. business guy and so i even tried to talk to professors at school at cornell within the five-year program to get an mba and and right. my right. my architecture degree at the same time they didn't quite go for it but i had them both at the table for a while and got close they, if i took an extra year they would have let yeah. me do it but couldn't get it there i, I didn't write down a business degree too yeah yeah that was there <laughs> that was one of the architecture is a pretty multi-dimensional yeah. thing it's not just art of course yeah. It's right. all those things put together. And John and I spent a lot of time talking about the communication is something that's really underrepresented in terms of, you know, if we're talking to students, if you can't yeah. communicate, if you can't understand who you're connecting with, good luck getting anywhere in architecture. Right. So, and of course, eventually it becomes clients, but a lot of it is your teams, the people you're working with. And that's for us, you know, both our internal teams, but all the external teams that yeah. create our big teams that create all yeah. these you know, projects that we generate. So yeah. I think that's underappreciated in a huge way. Absolutely. <clears throat> Absolutely. That's interesting. And, that idea of communication, especially with coming at it from like an English degree and from a, from a hand drawing, right? Uh, two different kind of ways of, of really communicating and um, that balance. What were, you, what were you saying, John? Well, I was going to say, they're, they're, I, I think, again, we could finish each other's words in this, but they're both so important. Um, we think it's really important to be able to sit with a client and listen and sketch. Um, you know, 
I, I, you know, I get what you're saying now. Okay, let's, yeah, let's, oh, I see that. Scott, smart. Let's lay down a piece of paper and draw a little bit. And to, and, and again, same with ask the right questions. Ask the right questions. And pry casually into whether it's their family lifestyle, if it's a residence or, of course, we do a lot of envisioning for resorts and, you know, creating new communities and places. Yeah. So a lot of it is getting the right people around the table early on to build a shared vision. We can, Unless you, we haven't talked about our trip process, we'll talk about that right. later. The program, right. but yeah. And so, communicating where we started was communication, and it was fun for you to bring up the, the sketch version of communication. Yeah, I was referring more to the verbal and the engagement kind of side, but it's true that the sketching and now the technology, all those things are so much more powerful. You put them all together. Right. 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 So we do a lot of analog in the past. Of course, a lot of digital now, and it, for us, it's pretty important to do both. Right. And that includes youthful energy here and passion uh, and experience, you know, for people that have been around the block with them. Bringing all that together early on is how we operate and how we work. Yeah. And our charrette is kind of a culmination of that. Yeah. We're really a representational of that. We yeah. kick off projects with design charrettes that are super intense, roll up our sleeves. You know, they're not just an expanded meeting. With, with a lot of people, when we talk about charrettes, that's what they're doing. So, and Rich mentioned it, but I, I want to underscore um, the the fundamentals of communicating with a client are the same as communicating with your team when you're brand new in the office. Um, asking questions about what what's this project about? I'm thinking of this and this is that in the right direction, and then. Phrasing, strategizing the right drawing and words to get to a better solution. It's so important. So, yeah, I I think it's huge. I think it's really huge. Yeah. And so was that was that idea and understanding of communication was that something you had before you came to Aspen, or is that or the firm that you joined, right? That wasn't quite CCY, but the original. Did that instill that threat system, the communication, those things inside of you? That that, and was that something that drew you there? Right? It's not an obvious like I'm going from Cornell to Aspen, or you know, like how how did you get there, and what what, what was the environment like when you got there? Well, I, I would say for you, that I know for, for me, communication um, was was always a big part of it. In fact, I um, when I got out of graduate school. I, I helped teach for a little bit at the graduate school in Salt Lake City. And one of the things I wanted to teach was a communication class in professional, in the professional practice. Because, yeah, I, I, you know, we go to school with a lot of people who have a ton of talent and they're not able to apply it as well as they could. And, you know, they're your friends. <laughs> hey. Put some time into how you're putting these ideas across as much as the idea. So that was in me, I know, when I when I got here. Yeah, I think for me, as I mentioned earlier, you know, business was always a half important, you know, it was a big part of the equation. And of course communication is usually central to being good at convincing people to do things. Yeah. Which would be business in some regards. Um, most of our architectural education I'm looking at both of you guys, but there's a fair amount of communicating and 
presenting your ideas, presenting the design. And inherent of that is who you're talking to. So you always get used to the professors you're talking to, and they all have different agendas. Mm-hmm. And that was a pretty big to navigate that water and do it in, in a very rapid fire way. Often we would do it every single week for an entire semester. So it was really hot. And that was, uh, that brought the best to the top. You know, it was often the best talent plus the best ability to connect is what thrived, right? And, uh, and I think to me, that was the start of that environment in, in terms of being able to, um, to lead clients in, in the right direction or, you know, the best direction in terms of creating great design and great places. And, and I, I think when, when they are done together, when you consider Communicating the idea as well as the idea. And again, what this is whether it's graphic or verbal, you, you critique them both together and it's, there's much more synergy there. Um, this is what I'm, this is what I would like to say about the project or where we are in it. And then you realize that's actually not very, uh, astute or can be fine tuned more. What I'd really like to say is more this and this. This is the, this is a more robust idea or maybe a deeper idea. And then you look at the design and say, hmm, now the design's not keeping up with the idea. And so I, I just think they inform each other beautifully. And and the the work gets better. And of course then the communication gets better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how how did you both end up in Aspen? You first? I can start. I um I came here to take the semester off from school that I never took off to ski bump. And I um I had already interviewed in Chicago and San Francisco and DC and had my job offers and I decided no, I'm gonna go take that semester off with my high school buddy. We had considered uh, six or seven different ski areas and Aspen one for a number of reasons, including the best looking girl. <laughs> and um but came here uh, and did not consider architecture for like three months. But I knew three architects here in Aspen. Um, and one of them uh, worked for this firm, Hagman Yaw at the time. And he was a fellow Cornell architect. He kept bugging me the entire time I was ski bombing to come work with you guys. I also knew Sam Cottill, which was a really well-known name back then. Wonderful guy. He was a Cornell alumni. He had come and lecture at Cornell. One time he was there, Art Gensler was also lecturing, and Sam shows up with his cowboy kind of blazer, big hair, right, you know, big cane, and he ended his presentation yeah. to yeah. all the Cornell yeah. group with a picture of the Coors can on the um, pool table. So I thought he was the coolest guy. Yeah. Yeah. He pulled it all off, and we were pen pals for years before I came to Aspen. Huh. Sometimes he would answer my letter four months late because he was out hunting in Wyoming for four months. Stuff like that, crazy old school stuff. But he was still around, and we were buddies. And so I had some options. And I, you know, I knew that coming to that maybe I could find a way to stay for a year or two and have it. But I never thought that I could be in Aspen long term for the whole career and, and have never. the balance I mentioned no. Of, no. of fun and outrageous outdoor lifestyle, right. coupled with serious world class kind of design. And yeah. uh, pretty proud of you know whether it's lucky or making our own luck. Yeah. We'll be able to put that together. They're closely <laughs> interrelated. Yeah. And then, so I, I think I need to correct one thing. I, because I, I said that I backed into architecture. By the time I did back into architecture, and then looking in the rearview mirror, there were all the classic 
clues in my life, you know, of drawings and designing houses that I kind of never, anyway. But by the time I got out of graduate school, I was, I was really serious about the profession. It, it, um, we use the term sometimes, you know, if you have the disease, if you have the design disease, <laughs> then you got to follow it. And so uh, in Salt Lake City, I had um, worked for a number of different offices, and I'd actually had my own little firm for a while. <laughs> and the Salt Lake City architectural community is pretty small. And um, my girlfriend and I were considering moving to Denver. And I got a, I got a call and a, and a job offer in Aspen. And I literally looked at the map and said, oh, halfway between Denver and Salt Lake City, that's perfect. And so moved and I, I opened a branch office. And um, it closed three months later. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, oh, damn. Um, but then it's like, well, I'm not really ready to move yet. So then I started interviewing firms. I interviewed also Sam Cadell, who's great. He literally came in at nine o'clock in the morning or whatever, big beard, full of leaves. Said, ah, I've just been duck hunting, you know. <laughs> so I like just like read, just like, oh, I love this guy, but I didn't want to work for you. Just because I I read also I uh, seen some of Hagman Yaw's work published in like architectural records. I'm interested in those guys. And when um, I walked in the door of Hagman Yaw, I loved it immediately. And I was, I had, I think I mentioned, I had my own little firm in Salt Lake City in my living room, like all young architects are supposed to do. How exciting. And I hated it because I just struggled with the smallest little details. I still remember a damn parapet detail from 1977 that it was like, I can't figure this out. And there's nobody to talk to. And I'm all by myself. And I hate this. And I walked into Hagman Yaw, Copeland Hagman Yaw at the time. Everybody's sitting next to each other. They're serious about their architecture. They were serious about their fly fishing and skiing and supporting each other and giving each other plenty of guff about it. And it was like, this is the atmosphere that I want to be in. And uh, so that, and that was late 1979. And so you said they, they've been, the firm itself has been around for about 50 years. So they've been there for around for like 20 years before. 1971, I think. It's a little we, mysterious. I really started very early 70s in Aspen. So <laughs> we've heard conflicting right. reports, but it's sometime in 71. Yeah. Larry, Larry Yaw, who is the founding partner, will sometimes set up to a year and sometimes not. <laughs> and we don't know whether he just doesn't really remember or doesn't want to remember. But anyway, we say 71. I think we've kind of adopted 1971 as the founding. So, so that real collaborative environment was there already. Was yeah, the definitely? You know, we were talking about sort of ideas and communication before. Was there a, a real strong idea to the place? Uh, you know, I think Aspen's also interesting of, of the kind of Bauhaus influence that's really strong on such a small place. Was that also kind of right. interwoven in? What What was the idea, kind of? Yeah, definitely. Um, so the um, Founding partners had all gone to the uh, University of Washington, mm. and then Larry had gone to Columbia for graduate work. 
and they were modernist-oriented, but really intrigued with the idea of um, practicing in a place that was not mainstream. I mean, that's, that's how they ended up in Aspen. So there was modernist ideas, but they were quite taken by the idea of how can we use some more traditional materials or very textural materials or wood and stone and these things that you don't use in cities? You don't, you, you didn't use a lot of wood and stone in modernist architecture in the early 70s. And it was modern, it was international style modernism. Or placeless. Yeah, placeless. Mm-hmm. And so they really, this adapting, not quite vernacular, but adapting things that fit. But with a with a more critical eye to what the forms were and what the detailing was and um, what the resources used to to do the places, it was definitely in the DNA of the firm. And that seems like it's pretty consistent to now, right? Is, is, would would you articulate it in that same sort of way, kind of your your theory or approach to architecture? Well, has it changed? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's been refined and tuned and <clears throat> I think, frankly, gotten better and better. Yeah. Um, but I, I think the notion of some unconventional in it, um, connecting to place, what does it mean to do modern architecture in these incredible natural environments that we work in? You know, most of our projects are in the Rockies, but we have many that are in other incredible environments around the world. You know, we've been working in the Caribbean. We've been working in Southern California. We've worked in Mexico. Etc. And but almost always we're connecting to a very special landscape, and uh, and how does architecture kind of be symbiotic with that? Be unique to that place, something that couldn't be anywhere else, um, but be progressive and modern at the same time. It's it's much harder than let's have one of those modern houses and we'll have one of those vernacular houses. Right. So, and I think, I think that's what drives us. You know, yeah. is that that extra challenge. And and Rich mentioned the the work is better, and and the work is better. Um, than it was, there, and there was a lot of very progressive work that the firm did in the early 70s. But I think one of the advantages we of of being an established firm is that we can we can build on past successes. And mm-hmm. quite frankly, you know the the recognition that the firm got in the 70s allowed the work to get a little bit better and a little better, and and us collectively. Then having more confidence to say, no, this, we, we've been taking this idea halfway. Let's develop it further. And again, we, we talk a lot about collaboration and partnership. Um, it, to me, it's just the best of sense because we, of course, tend to have, have our own clients, but we, we have a lot of design reviews in the office quite often. And, you know, like I said, Rich and I have been partners for a long time, and and to really have a valued, trusted partner in in the broadest sense of the word, not not the business sense, and and uh, is is an amazing thing. So I would be working on some project, and Rich would either have a drive-by critique or an essential kind of design review, and just very supportingly say something like, "I think we could take this farther." What if, why don't we take a part? Why don't we? And that is then how, to me, things get better. And that's what's been happening.
money for a long time in the firm, building on past successes. Yeah. And let's go back to that idea of the the sort of design process. And I'm interested to hear more of, of sort of that that process and and that the real kind of technical idea or, or process again of connecting to site, right? Like we all want to do it, but you guys do it better than most everyone else. So yeah, what are your secrets? Share share it over here and yeah. Never. <laughs> Come on. A little bit of that secret here. sauce. Come on. Come on. Is We're it, going to weird down to the, the wrong it, secret sauce. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Do you want to take a first pass at that? I was sure I wasn't going to share about that. Okay. <laughs> Next question. Okay. Um, let's see. Can I get some of your uh, 3D models? No, or, no, we can. No, no, no. We're, 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 we're pimping a little bit here. I, um, I, I have a pretty strong feeling as to why we connect to sites well and in different ways and in unexpected ways. And I think it's because mostly we really, really care about it. And again, we've had enough chances, enough opportunities over the year to learn from a building that we did a decade ago and then think about how that can be better and stronger. But mostly it's because we really care about it. And we it means a lot to us. And um it it's not it's it's not a one line answer. It's not a simple bigger glass, bigger views. It has almost nothing to do with that. But what are the other ways that can be more powerful, more poetic, more nuanced? Um that applies that, that really works for that client and that site. And that, that's, I think, why we do it better. We, we cared about it for a long time yeah. and we still care about it a lot. I mean, we work hard to go beyond the obvious. Maybe that's true for other architects as well. But when we're studying a site, interviewing a site, we spend a lot of time trying to unveil the other subtleties that a lot of people would overlook. And to try to really get serious about creating a multi-dimensional place and experience when you're there. We have a lot of properties that we work on that, again, are just incredible views, incredible connections to nature. But usually there's a lot of other aspects to the property that a lot of people would overlook. The magic of the very quiet northern view in the trees um, or framing a very specific aspect of the property in the foreground or in the distance. So. Um, we have pro- projects where we've studied the DNA of the surrounding forest right. and use that to generate a unique sighting pattern that is a reinterpretation of the DNA sequence of the forest. And part of that was the owner's interest in, in, yeah. in biology and nanobiology, et cetera. So yeah. it, it is often a blend of interviewing the clients, if you will, and the site. Um, and, you know, for our larger projects that are more resort or recreationally based, there's an evolved version of that as well, because obviously the, the people experience is not individual people. It's not a specific client. It's going to be thinking about a day in the life of the people using this over the next 50 years, 100 years. And we'll spend time thinking about everybody in the generation that comes to visit. Right. And how do we, you know, there's the grand grandkid test that we talk about. How mm-hmm. do we get the grandkids to really want to come to this hotel or this place uh, now and in the future? Right. And, uh, and 
sustainability and resilience is a piece of that ever more importantly in our in our yeah. language yeah. and um and, and what's the right language back to communication to connect with hit each client in terms of you know kind of having that responsibility moving forward and right. for some of them most of them they're building multi-generational places that's that's a threat to all of our clients mm-hmm. so if we're building a whole new resort which we have two or three resort communities we're doing right now from scratch um the grandchild test is a huge part of it so what is the essence of this experience that we're trying to create for these families and and how is that going to work in 20 30 years that the grandchildren want to inherit that home or inherit right. that resort or inherit that experience or inherit that tradition of going there so it can, it can get pretty deep I'm not trying to get too deep here but um it's really a lot of fun and, and that, yeah. that kind of cross-pollinization of these different project types is something we should talk about too because mm-hmm. i think for both john and i and really for our firm we love doing special homes yeah but that's only a component of our practice and i think our practice on homes is far better because of the larger projects we do and vice versa. Yeah. So uh, we thrive on diversity and whether that's project type or client type or um, or location and landscape we're working in. But I think the big threat is they're almost all legacy projects. Hmm. They don't tend to be something that's flipped quickly. There's a longer term investment and the people truly share the passion for caring more deeply than, than some others would. That's interesting. And so has that, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I feel like I mostly know you for these homes, right. But was that the sort of base of the firm and then it, you, you've been diversifying or has, has that diversity always, always been there? And, um, it's that, always been there actually. Um, always, uh, one of the firms, I think still a, a really stunningly cool project and, and, was uh, 1970, I think, four, five, six, something like that. It was the Piston County Airport and Airport Terminal, and um, a, a very strong, passively heated building, and then a lot of active solar systems also. And um, it was, I'm pretty sure that one of the largest passively heated public buildings in the United States. So, and, and a public project. After that, the firm did a, um, a model post office also based on sustainability, how to have more sustainable practices within the post office. And at that time, the firm was doing houses as well, residences as well. So that, um, I, I, we, we, we don't like the word house attacks. We don't want to be house attacks. Um, <laughs> It, it, it's a it's a big profession and it's a great profession to um, you know if you're a designer everything's a design challenge so we we want to be involved with uh, I think that maybe the physically the largest project we've been involved in is seven thousand acres and we helped craft the narrative of the place and why it should be what it is. Hold on, there's a thirteen thousand acre one we're doing right now, John. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the same same idea. Idea. Good point. Yeah. 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 So update. Yeah. <laughs> update. Um, but, but one point to me is that, and I didn't mention part of my career before I, well, I, I was with the firm in the um, late eighties, early nineties for a few years. I was the youngest person here. 
the whole three years right. I was here. And then I left and I worked for several other firms, one of which is Design Workshop, mm. which is a landscape architecture and land planning mm. firm. And for me, it was like opening the floodgates to what's happening out in the world. Yeah. I did projects in Asia, South America, Chicago, all from Aspen. And I was with them for three plus years. And eventually find my way back here. John and Larry uh, seduced me back. But <laughs> you took a gap decade. Yeah, took a gap few years. But I guess the reason I bring it up is that was, at least from my personal experience, and John has his own version of of having a desire to do projects that are beyond singular built. Yeah. And, yeah. and I really enjoy, and John does too, creating places. And, and often that's a compound of buildings. Sometimes in, in the, the super acreage examples, we're creating a whole new resort communities. And we're doing one in, in Utah right now that's, that's right. 13,000 acres. And a lot of it will be open space and conservation. But uh, and we're creating the image centers or the heartbeats of those communities. And sometimes we'll do the residential as well or components of it. But the, the gratification of making these larger places that even more people use is a big part of our practice. And I think, again, it fuels our capabilities on residences and in reverse the craftsmanship and the detail we get into our residences hugely informs our capabilities it's really a boutique firm for those kind of larger projects so we don't do a lot of them but we're always doing a few of them yeah we've got a few right now that are pretty notable you know one's in california one's in utah etc so yeah very exciting and so yeah that the the cross-pollination as as rich said um is has has been important since the inception and uh, I, as far as I'm concerned, I hope it never goes away. I just, I, uh, you know, Rich mentioned um, a day in the life, like a day in the life of the grandchild test. Um, again, we, we know how people live from doing residential work in these environments pretty darn well. But then how does a hospitality, how does a hotel embody that? How does a hotel have some of the um, you know, I think, I think we, we were involved with one of the very first boutique hotels in a mountain environment, in a, in a resort environment. And, and that's because you're thinking about the same thing. What are the guests going to do? What are the guests going to do when it is not ski season and not summer season? And what's going to make them remember this place and connect to these stunning environments? And it, it's the same with the larger community. What is, what is the ethos? of it and why and why does that really belong here and then how can we execute that in the buildings and the you know in a perfect sense down to the cabinetry yeah no, it's, I think that's, it's, it's, a, it's a great design problem yeah and I, and I think that's really interesting that you work for design workshop rich i mean because i feel like they're very good at, at thinking about outdoor space as rooms kind of architecturally more than some landscape architects and the way that you guys i think you know at least to me it seems like if you have these clients looking for large homes coming to you it'd be very easy to sort of have these ballooned out floor plans that get very large but i think what you do nicely is this is work with bars and work with thinner elements that kind of create these delicate sort of courtyards and and interlocking outdoor spaces or pods or whatever you know and it's creating those kind of um outdoor rooms right it's it's all the architecture is extending out not just in views but in spaces and how it's used and um and so 
I like to say that the outdoor spaces are just as important as the interior spaces. So the architecture creates the walls of those rooms, right? Mm-hmm. Along with landscape, by the way. Mm-hmm. And so we have very strong opinions with our landscape architecture partners uh, in terms of what spatially should be happening, of course, externally as much as internally. Right. So, you know, we've had a collaboration with Design Workshop. I think the firms have kind of grown up together since mm-hmm. the 70s, yeah. so before I was here. But the collaboration, I think, for at least from my perspective, has been so strong because I actually spent three years with them internally. And, and, and you know, yeah, I think it's been one of the most important relationships in the in the firm's history. Yeah, they're they're very professional, very driven, very talented, and we we I, I think bring out the, the best in each other in in a lot of projects that we've we've worked on together. And um, you know, we're we're good friends with the principals and have been literally. We're now going on the third generation of of Kind of owners of this firm and and that firm and and that those are those are tremendous professional relationships when you can have those in a related field but not the same and really develop it over a long time that's that's a that's a beautiful thing get a lens on your own work from someone you trust and respect from a related field it's really great yeah building those relationships yeah. So let's, I think that kind of merges nicely into this new book that you guys have pulled together. So connection, right? Uh, what what was the process behind that? What, there, what, there it is. What, what was that? John, right sorry. there. There's more landscape on the cover than I did. <laughs> yeah, that's very telling. <laughs> on the cover. Yeah. <laughs> did Design Workshop do that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, the cover. Um, now, so what, what was the process of pulling that together? They kind of... Uh, the idea behind that book, right? What, what are you, what are you trying to communicate? The process of pulling it together was long and much harder than we anticipated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we, we have been talking about um, another monograph. This is, this is the, the first one of CCY and we wanted it but for, for a long time. We've been talking about it for quite a while. And, as we, um, as it started to develop, we, the, the idea of really focusing not, not just on finished work, but on the design approach, the, um, like you said, the, the care and passion of connecting to these sites and um, merging that some with our charrette process, as Rich mentioned, Became, uh, I think it's actually kind of the central idea of the of the book, even though it's it's um, two relatively small chapters within the the um, the book that covers ten residences. And as that developed, again, like we were talking about, communication informs work, work informs communication. We had um, one of our conference rooms pinned up essentially with mock-ups of the book when it was in very, very, very rough shape for a year and a half. <laughs> Nicole's here with us and she's going, one, two years, you know. Um, and and we would all get together, you know, the, the, the principal, the leadership group, the rest of the office. And um, is this, do we, do we feel strongly that this is what we want to say. And if so, if this is what we want to say, 
how is it informing our work now? Mm. You know, and and how can the book get better at describing that, and how can the work? So it it took four years, I think. We're again, sorry, checking, fact checking, but um, four years, and I think that was actually turned out to be a really good thing because it really did um, it clarified the process for us, which was always there. It just hadn't kind of been put down as much. And we, um, it, it informed the work, the work informed the book, of course. Um, but that's, that was, that was the process. And you want to add to that? Yeah. Well, I think for us, there's, <clears throat> there's a balance of really spectacular, sexy results yeah. and how we got there. Yeah. And we wanted to make sure we covered both. Yeah. And so. Another way to say, well, we've added the chapters or included the chapters that are more about process and conceptualization, some would argue more academic, mm -hmm. which not everyone connects with as well as other things. So we think that the books come out as a real great balance of, of ideas, conceptualization, maybe academic thought, and great results. And therefore, I think, you know, it kind of bridges the gap of the range of what generates our great work, you know, so... So we're really excited about it. And it, it is, it is good, it's good for us as, as it is for the larger world. I mean, it's been an important process for us to look into our souls. What have we created and how do we do it and how do we think and, and to share that appropriately. So Adam, Adam you, just, you just witnessed one of the things that I, um, <laughs> it's one of our dynamics, which is, my, which is great. You asked the question, I started, I say all these words, and then Rich has gotten really good over the years I think what John's trying to say, and then he clarifies it succinctly. Nice. Like yeah, it's a good team teamwork. Although you're supposed to be the English major, right? The uh, the writer. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, I got the degree. I didn't say I was good at it. That's true. I guess you didn't finish it, but so. <laughs> and I, I mean, that's another good point of just of just the team, right? Uh, so it, it seems like you you know you have. Like you're saying, these people that they really love working to each other with each other and have great life and balance, and it seems like people stay there for a long time and um, and kind of moving on to the next generation of of principals, right? Uh, so, what what's your sort of team like, and how how has it been transitioning? I, I think our team is is becoming ever more diverse. We we have more women than we've ever had. We're about 50-50, male-female, which has never been the situation until the last couple of years. Um, I, I think the team continues to be, maybe more than ever, diverse in terms of age. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because the firm has matured, of course. And um, and I'm really proud of the multi-generational aspect of what we've got. It's really cool to see. You asked us to think about successes and challenges. One of our successes, we were just comparing notes. I, I think we both have times where we'll do a design charrette, and they're almost always highly successful. I guess it's always a matter of how highly. People all get pumped up. Our clients get pumped up. Our whole team gets pumped up. All of our other stakeholders get pumped up. Our design workshops, whoever we're working with. Um, but what's cool to watch our internal team is often it spans a wide diversity of age, of interests, of capabilities, of analog and digital. Um, of experiences, and we try really hard to have it be an open forum for, let's say, the youngest or least experienced person in the, in the 
room to truly have a voice. And they got to step up and have a voice, which can be daunting for some individuals. Mm-hmm. But we set up that environment and it pays off because often a few of the kernels that come out of the charrette that are, are different than if John and I were leading the whole thing or, or the only people leading uh, come out of some of the youngest people in the room. And, yeah. and that makes it fresh and different and better. And we love it. And when that really, really sings, like someone figured out the DNA idea. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just, that's really satisfying. And when everybody's nodding their heads, all the clients are nodding their heads, you know, when you kind of do the final presentation, that's really gratifying. And it, and it happens at all scales, like we talked about earlier. So, um, yeah. And, you know, we've, we talked a, a little bit about the inception of the firm. And, um, we, we don't talk about that all that much because to us, the, the magic of the place, or one aspect of it is that there are some people with, you know, older older people with lots of experience, but that, as Rich said, there there are both people, principals as well as associates as well as the rest of the team members who are young, and have a different, valid, you know, opinion and perception and want to have a voice in contributing to where the firm's going and why we're going there. And that is, that's powerful. That's really powerful. Um, and when you can, you know, when you're guiding, you're orchestrating all those different voices and it really all starts singing, which usually yeah. eventually happens. Usually yeah. in every charrette we do, yeah. which is a yeah. three or four day exercise. Sometimes there's kind of around the clock work going on. There's giddy hours involved and all that kind of stuff. You know, there's highs and lows, I guess is my yeah, point. Definitely. Often there's halfway through these work sessions, like, we're just not getting there. This isn't any good yet. This isn't, you know, this isn't feeling right. And almost always it comes around and, and kind of erupts into um, not the final solution, but some good, solid ideas that everyone coalesces around. And then, you know, we're kind of collectively building a vision with our clients. So that's super gratifying. Mm-hmm. You know, and you asked about our team. I think our team is a huge part of that. If we didn't have the eclectic, highly talented, but diverse, um, yeah. you know, different personalities, of course, yeah. you wouldn't get that. Yeah. You know, it would be more monotone. It would be more following one leader, and that's just not the way we've ever really been. Right. And we think it creates better design. So. And it seems like it... Yeah, I, I, have, I have one story about that, by the way. Yeah. Um, and and we, we could talk about Charette's story until the sun goes down and comes up again, because there's there are a lot of stories. But one that illustrates that point was we were doing a charrette for a house um, in the client's house. Uh, this actually happened to be in Telluride, but they had a house in Telluride and they bought some land quite a ways outside of Telluride. And they invite we didn't have a place to work there. They invited us to stay in their house and do the work at their dining room table. So there were three of us from the firm that were there for three and a half days. And um, we, you know, we ate with them. We worked on the table. They would leave us alone. They'd come back. And and when when the charrette wrapped up, um, the, the client, she said, my gosh, I've never heard designers have such passionate discussions about the direction. She and, and she was looking at me because, you know, they had interviewed me and gotten to know the firm through. But she just said, 
you guys were really kind of going at it. And yeah, and that is exactly what Rich is talking about. And um, because everyone was invested, everyone had beliefs that they wanted to have heard. And, and it was magic. And, and I just love that because she's just, I, I've never heard, I've never been there in the making of the sausage and heard people have such strong opinions. And uh, I, I just took that as a really, really high compliment. I really love to hear that. Hmm. And yeah. that house, by the way, turned into the one that Rich mentioned earlier, that, that um, it's the DNA strand of oh, uh, yeah. a, a tree behind it. It's going to that, be a That's a good one. Hand. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it's hard, it's hard to set up that, that real collaborative environment. Right. And I I feel like it, it takes, it takes having a clearly articulated idea around the firm and then a clear system of working, which it seems like you, you've gotten both of those, which then allows all members of the team to really kind of be directed into that, that channel. Right. I mean, you know, and that that because that's where you get like single owner firms. If there's not that system, and if there's not that clearly articulated goal, it's just a a, a person's signature, right? Um, but yeah, it it uh, you could argue it takes more work, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to really believe in it, and yeah. you have to have at least a faith sometimes in individuals you don't know as well that are newer to the team, right? Um, so it takes a lot of skill on how to. Subtly lead, I would say, and, and see where people are coming from and what their skill sets really are, and uh, and fitting all those back together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it almost always works. I mean, it's not perfect. There's times where it works better than others, but um, and we're not trying to rush to conclusions either, by the way. Yeah. But you know, the, the you about a charade, a charade or the, yeah. you know, a rapid fire yeah. kind of focus. Uh, but it, often. Um, it does help the best ideas kind of rise to the top in a focused way. A lot of our clients move very fast, move around the world all the time. Some of them are even hard to convince to be in one place for three days, frankly. Yeah, three days. It used to be fast. Now it's like, oh, my God, I don't possibly have three And uh, I had one client. Um, we actually traveled with them back to where their other home is. And we spent two days where the project was and two days at their other home because he had to go to the board meeting and, you know, whatever, da, da, da. We were on the airplane sketching with him, and we knew that Sharep was going well when the scotch came out, and he started sketching over my drawing. He said he wasn't going to be involved. This is my wife's project, and he's been involved. And, of course, the house is done now. It's spectacular. He's been involved ever since. So we got to have dinner with him in their home and get to know their children and get to know their art collection. And we you know, kept this Sharep going wherever we were, and it worked. So you got to get creative about the process sometimes. Right. So we've done... Lately, we even before the pandemic, we have been doing virtual charrette if necessary. Yeah. John led one that was for a hotel in China last February. Yeah. That, right before mm-hmm. COVID. It was a Zoom focus. And we added some more technology in terms of cameras in the office and things. And our team was here together. But the client group was remarkably scattered across the globe. We had China. Someone was in China. Beijing. Beijing, someone's in Toronto, someone's in Denver, and someone's in like an Abu Dhabi. Abu Dhabi, they got back in Abu Dhabi, couldn't get back. So, and then, well, in Denver, good yeah. design workshop developed yeah. in that. And we had an overhead camera so we could draw on the table because it was happening. It was mm. a very large project. It was happening very, very fast. So that was, that was 
pretty re- rewarding, literally drawing on front of them and all that. And so that process it has well, been able to, you feel like it it can adapt to a kind of a digital world, like that shred process? It seems seems pretty difficult. Yeah. Um, I, I think, yes, because it has to. I mean, the world's changing and it's different. So we actually, in fact, um, a couple of years ago, talked to, we were in conversations with, UC Denver um, about trying to teach a completely digital class, but it was about place-based architecture. Mm. We it, it never came to fruition, but we were all excited about it because it, it's very different than, of course, how we've generally done it, which is be on the site. Mm-hmm. So um, again, you have to learn and adapt, and and how to how to be smart about use the resources that you can have even if you can't be on site as much as you would like sometimes so um or the client can't or the same room the client too. or the same but, room right, right. so it, uh, it's probably not as good to be right. direct about it i mean i think you know there's ways to make it as good as it can be and there might be aspects of it that are even better sometimes maybe you get a little more focus from certain people around the globe or something but clearly the listening and connecting to the particular site I think moving forward, we will hybridize all those things yeah. together. If we have a busy client or a client group that's all over the world, we're still going to be on site some, yeah. get to know, of course, and study and interview that site. And probably, ideally, some of the lead client people would be there as well, you know, like in a hospitality yeah. environment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then we can, you know, we were, we were doing that eight or ten years ago. Yeah. We did a shred in Montana. John and I did it together ten years ago. Yeah. And we had an array of clients all over the world, chiming in at certain points during the three or four day process. We had some live and others were in New York and you know, things like that. So, um, I, and I think there, there might be an analogy to where we we really like to, as Rich mentioned, in, especially in charrettes, but the rest of our practice as well, combine analog and digital. So the best technology we could possibly get and feel, feel free to get in and draw on it. And that might be kind of similar, more similar going forward, where there's some things that are just better digitally, virtually, right. and some that can't be replaced. And, and you have to try them and see what works well and what doesn't work well in the finished product to, to really learn from it, get better going forward. Right. But in that idea of just growth and change and 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 future, right? Yeah, yeah figuring out what still works best. and. Yeah. yeah. So what 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 do you say? What does the the future of CCY look like? What what is the the projection for you guys and and beyond? What is that expression? Future so bright you gotta wear shades. <laughs> Things are looking good. <laughs> well, I've, I've got. Uh, I mean, there there are some uh, I think really exciting things coming up, but to. And we can talk about those. But the to me, when again, when you had kind of prompted, what does the future look like? To me, it is it is um, more of the same of youthful energy, passion um, combined with experience. That that's what what came to my mind first off is uh, there are so many really talented, passionate people 
we're at a conference room. They're out there right now. And um, getting them more involved and uh, getting their voices more involved, I, I, I'm just so excited about that. I think that's what the future holds a lot of that. Yeah, I think the growth we've experienced is more about growth in quality than quantity. Right. Uh, yeah. Quantity of projects or quantity of people. Um, and I think we feel that's been working. And it only works, I think, because of the constant injection of new ideas, youthfulness would be John's version of that, I think, um, coupled with experience and, and uh, timely understanding. Yeah. So to keep that environment fresh and alive, you know, we keep we, to adapt and change and evolve. And uh, we haven't been through a bunch of revolutions here at the company, I would say. We've been all about evolving smartly, and uh, it's been working very well. But uh, it, it takes new blood, new partners, and you know we have several newer partners in the last few years, and hopefully in the next few years we'll have several more. Yeah. And uh, and it's not just partners, of course; it's all the team members we keep talking about. And, and so, Rich mentioned a really important point that we haven't mentioned yet: it's that um, growth is critical to the firm, but we have never defined growth about getting larger. We we really, it has not been a goal of ours to build a bigger firm for a long time. We want to build a good firm. We want to build a good firm built around terrific projects and terrific people. And, and if there's some growth that naturally happens out of that organically, that's okay. that's okay. So we're not trying to harness the growth either, but we're trying to you know, be effectively more selective and more focused on, on the best design. Yes. We wish, and, and to that point, it's when when clients call us to interview us about a potential project, we have tried to be really rigorous in interviewing them and, and trying to ascertain if their value system is a good match for our value system. If, well, are they aligned? They're not a good match for and And if so, if they're aligned, then... We're going to kick ass, and if not, then time to hopefully, respectfully say maybe we shouldn't be working together. So, yes, because uh, that has to be that has to be a difficult sort of dichotomy sometimes of of that balance of growth, yeah, and and change and what that would mean of different locations and things, and then the degradation of your culture that you created or, or that idea of place or um, right. yeah but so other other kind of some specific things that part of the reason that <clears throat> I'm very excited going forward we are excited about having the month draft come out that's that's been a we set up a an invigorating project to work on it internally but um so far, it's gotten some, I think, pretty nice widespread interest. We've been doing book review interviews, um, some pretty far flung places. That's been gratifying. But, um, boy, the wave. Can we talk about the wave? We, okay. I mean, there, there are just a handful of um, projects that are both wrapping up, which we think are really some really wonderfully noteworthy, they're really strong projects, and then ones that are further out. Um, yeah, let's talk about the wave a little bit. That, that we think really paints a, 
nice picture going forward. We're really excited about it. Yeah, I mean, we've been working on a, a new project. I mentioned it fairly earlier. It's out in the desert of California, in the Coachella Valley. And it is a new resort community on four or 500 acres. Uh, what's unique about it is it's focused on progression. And the centerpiece of the project is a Kelly Slater wave pool, which is a half mile long um, man-made wave. And there's a lot of dichotomies of surfing in the desert and water in the desert. And, of course, the machine that's part of creating the wave. Um, and how do you build a place around something like that? There's a prototype that's built, you may have heard of, near Fresno, that is spectacular and has generated a wave. They've rebuilt it three times. They've perfected it. And this will be the first, I think, the first time that you know, the 2.0 wave is built. But thinking larger than that, and our focus has been on how to build a place and an experience and a community around really outdoor pursuits and progression for everyone in the family, everyone, uh, every generation. So it's really been exciting. We've been working on it for several years, off and on, and now it's almost entitled, the funding is in place, and we're moving forward with tuning the vision and the aesthetics and how to create something that's very much of that place, that physical place, which is spectacular, and it's up against one of the mountain ranges in the Coachella Valley. So it, it actually has the ability to kind of detach from the other development in that area, which is very golf course-centric, and have something that's very raw and natural and authentic to that place. And the architecture is going to be all about speaking to that climate and how to live in that climate and try to get to net zero carbon and those kinds of focuses um, in a way that hasn't been done before. And, and a very simple lifestyle in a lot of ways. You know, the surf culture is is about the water and the, and the waves right. and, right. and not in the organic, real honesty to that. So it's really got us thinking. We brought in some new partners recently, some other design partners, one interior design firm from Brooklyn, New York, who we worked with in one other project. They've started to contribute. And, uh, and it's, it's really dynamic because it's, it's well beyond one building, of course. You know, so we're building a whole kind of village or surf village core. There'll be a hotel. Um, we have artisan residents, which are surfboard sculptures, yeah. which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and there's uh, a performance center, not a fitness center, but, a, you know, a performance-focused center uh, that you can work on your breathing, you can work on health and wellness and all the most progressive. And there's also a lifelong kind of learning aspect to it. So um, they might even... The, you know, electric motocross mm. tracks and all kinds of crazy stuff. But, you know, very different than anything that's really been done before. It's certainly different than anything that's been done in Southern California. Well, yeah. and, uh, I mean, I mean, it, it's, it's just intoxicating to think about because it's so cool. And some of the early images that the, uh, client was really interested in, there was one that was a kind of a really rundown shack in Baja and then a taco truck. Yeah. <laughs> This is what I'm looking for. And, you know, that's... Yeah, very unpretentious. I mean, the folks yeah. really would be part of it, could probably afford anything they want, but this is going to be, you know, a new version of Barefoot Luxury that is, you know, really connected to that environment. Yeah. They start so, anyway, just, one example, just one example, but there are yeah. a number of some really nice projects coming up. I think the yeah. other thing that pulls into that Oh, sorry, Adam. You were well. I was just going to say it's really funny you say that. That's that's fantastic because when I was at Three Five Nine Design, I worked on two of those developments around a Kelly Slater pool, and and it's such a a crazy a crazy thing. And I'm I'm really happy that it's 
it's being done well and thoughtfully, especially like out there on the desert. And and really there's such right. potential of thinking about what could be going around this. And ours were so, so far off kind of sketchy concepts. It's good to see that uh, some really good thoughtful design there. What were you saying, Doug? Well, I, that there, there are a couple other things that, um, one that folds into that really directly. Um, I think I mentioned we we have a long history in the firm of some some really leading edge sustainable projects, but there have been times through the firm where where our focus on that has, has ebbed and flowed. To be to be really honest about it, but in the last year, Rich and a and a team in the office have really um, I think done some great work. Helping us refocus on that, and their strategic or sustainable action plan is um, going to be adopted here really soon, and has some really, really fantastic uh, guidelines to recommit to. And uh, we're really uh, excited about that going forward, about getting it back more in kind of everything we do instead of some and not as much yeah. others. So yeah. I, I think that's. Yeah, so for example, on the it's called Coral Mountain is the wave project. We just completed a shred a week and a half ago out there, and one of the key components was uh, starting to generate a sustainable master plan for the entire community. So the thinking system, the systems for the community, and then eventually we'll get to the building. But really trying to, what are we missing from a systemic standpoint, which often is not thought of from right. a community-based right. There's not that many examples that are really have come together from a community scale. Yeah. Everything can we get energy back off the wave? Uh, we're already talking about very special supercapacitors that have minimized our need to upgrade the electrical service to the wave into the site by yeah. about a tenth. Really a big deal. Yeah. So, so you can not build, I think it's 12 megawatts we don't have to build. So you can take that $12 million or $20 million and repurpose that to create resiliency and, you know, made itself sufficient uh, energy production on site right. with that money. Right. So a lot of really out-of-the-box thinking, really pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's exciting to do it at large scale. It's also exciting to do it, of course, when we're, we're going to do residences there that will be part of the village. You know, right. we're even talking about potentially straw or ABL, you know, that are just embracing mm -hmm. the desert um, yeah. climate and how to, how to create the right envelopes in a, in a very kind of wholesome, direct way. It's modern at the same time. So it would be modern, you know, so a moderately modernist, I would even say it's modern, but modern with Baja Shack. Yeah, yeah. Okay. you know, yeah. super type of desert, you yeah. know, of that yeah. palette. So nice. it's pretty exciting. I was going to say on the sustainable action plan for us, and, you know, the firms around the country, of course, have created their own sustainable action plans. I, I think for us, one of the things that rose on top is how do we find a way to inspire our clients? as opposed to kind of altruistically guilt them into things. Right. That's the real pivot. I know that sounds a little basic, but if you think of everything you do in terms of communicating back to clients, you know, if you can say, if this was my place, or if this was my community, this is what I would do, and here's why. And we've done it this way three or four times over here. People, that really can resonate with people. Right. Um, and, and there's just lots of layers to it. Um, and I think people are more open to being smart in that way than ever, um, what we've been seeing. So, yeah, now, I think there's one other thing that uh, looking forward, I think um, 
we're we're excited about. You know, our our, our offices are located in Basalt. Nobody knows where Basalt is in the greater world, of course. But we we moved the offices. And well, we still have we still have an office in Aspen. We moved the main office from Aspen to Basalt 20 years ago, 22 years ago, or something. And the reason we did that was in the 90s was the first time that it really hit home that a lot of our employees were driving 45 minutes to get to work. And the, the work-life balance that we'd all valued for so long was getting harder and harder for more of our employees. So we moved the office to where the employees could live. And we figured we're, we're on airplanes a lot anyway and all of that. And I, I'm... That was that was a terrific move, and um, for the quality of life for the people that work here. You know, there's an elementary school half a half a block away or two blocks away or whatever, and so they could just be more involved in their communities. And and we thought that was really a smart thing. Well, that was two decades ago, and um, I think post COVID. We are going to find, I think, a, a great way to kind of reinvigorate that work-life balance. And we don't know what it looks like yet, yeah. but we know the world's different. We know that we value collaboration and being together. And yet, there's some things that, obviously, they're not going to go back the way they were. And so I, I think in the future, again, we it, it's in our DNA to try and find a way that really works and really allows people to have a full, full, full life and a full, full professional life also. And so going forward, I think, um, I like I said, don't have any idea what that's going to look like, but um, I think it's going to be good. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys. I just really appreciate you guys coming on and getting an advanced copy of the book. And I think I told Nicole my eyes were kind of drooling over the screen. It's just a really beautiful uh, piece of work and 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 kind of behind the scenes, especially with the the shred process and and yeah, just the the work you guys are, are creating and the environment that you're you're doing. So thank thanks for coming on and telling the stories. So thanks. Well, thanks for the invitation. Yeah, thanks, Adam. Enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. yeah. You can visit architecting.com, that's architect-ing.com, to see images from this week's guest. And please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week and keep connecting. This is Sarah Hubbard, host of You and Me Kid, a podcast about starting and raising a family on your own. We just launched season two, and I'm speaking with single moms, those still considering, and experts in relevant fields to give you a real sense of what the day-to-day experience of solo parenting looks and feels like. Plus, this season, I've partnered with California Cryobank, the number one sperm bank in the U.S. So wherever you are in the process, this podcast provides some support, humor, and helpful information. Listen to You and Me Kid wherever you get your podcasts.